It's a simple answer. Hopefully it doesn't sound too cliche advice 101, but it is be true to your vision and be true to yourself. Because anyone that has the gumption to be the god of their own universe is always going to run into a Lucifer trying to tear that universe down. And it's easy to compromise, easy to change, easy to stop creating. But if you can hold steadfast, resist the yammerings, hold true to your vision, believe in yourself, I think that's the most extraordinary thing as a creator that, that, that you can do. Welcome to the Great and Famous Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Thompson, and together we share your stories of the everyday people that changed your life. We reconnect you with your greatest influence, recognize their generosity and lessons, and inspire others to do the same. It's practical wisdom from people you never heard of, aka the Great and Famous. Welcome back to the Great and Famous. This is the podcast where we uncover everyday wisdom by tracking down the greatest influence of your life. This episode is part two of an interview with Selwyn Seifu Hines, a master creator who's developed everything from magazines to comic books to TV series. If you have not listened to part one, you should definitely do that. Otherwise, you're going to miss some amazing stories like Selwyn's near-death experience at the Starlight Ballroom. But look, Selwyn's credits are too long to list, but one of his greatest accomplishments was guiding a young, now legendary journalist, Daytuan Thomas, during his early years. So... Selwyn was the right person at the right place at the right time with the right advice. So in this episode, we're going to hear about some of Selwyn's defining moments, what he learned from those, and how you can apply those to your own life. So let's get going. Selwyn, it's good to see you again. Thanks for the round two. (laughs) Good to see you too, and glad to be here. In our last conversation, we, we left off, we talked about your life as a storyteller. An immigrant raised in Guyana, then Brooklyn, then Miami, uh, but someone who always moved from circle to circle. And so Princeton, the Army, the Source, BET, Hollywood. But amidst all that, you took time to guide and give advice and to lift others up. If we could, I'd like to ask you about moments and lessons. Do you recall any particular moments of your life as you look back now saying, hey, I learned something from that that I could not have learned any other way without that experience. Anything mm. does anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, geez, give me a second to to sort through here. Um, yeah, I, I would say early in my magazine career, there was a there was a point where, and I, I'd only been there less than a year, but where I, I was feeling um pretty stifled at the source you know, taking on a bigger and bigger workload. And uh, even though the magazine was doing well, we weren't broadening it out the edit staff. It just so happened coincidentally that um, I got an offer from our competitor at the time, um, Vibe Magazine, to come over there. And I think it was uh, being an associate music editor or something of, of the sort. And uh, I was being recruited by my good friend and competitor at the time, uh, Daniel Smith. And um, the deal didn't quite get done I, I think i maybe asked for more money than they wanted to spend or for whatever reasons these these things don't get done and what i remember is running into um keith Klinkscales, uh also a good friend and sometime mentor and who ran vibe at the time at a you know at, at a party we were talking about it and i was, was kind of i think my my sentiment was sort of like i don't know what happened like i thought we were engaged in thing and in a way 
And Keith said something to the effect of, look, sometimes the bed may not be perfectly made, but you got to jump in it. And I was like, huh, I didn't quite know how to process that because I still was like, well, I want to make the money I'm, you know, I'm making. But I ended up sort of spinning it to my own you know, purpose. And I was like, you know what? I hadn't really shared what was happening with Vibe to my, you know, my boss at the source. So, and I don't know what gave me the gumption to do this, but I decided I would rewind time and pretend like the Vibe thing hadn't petered out. So I went to the source and I said, hey, Vibe is recruiting me aggressively. Um, I don't want to go, but in order for me to stay, this is what I need. You know, I need the, I need us to hire more staff and I need to be on a path to run in this place. I mean, I was like, just ask for everything. <laughs> it's like, I need to run this place, you know, and the publisher really didn't want to lose me. And um, we just did the deal sort of right then and there in the office. And then I said, holy shit, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I suppose I took a version of the lesson Keith Klingscale gave me, right? And saying that whatever metaphor you want to use, it's murky, it's dark, it's not perfect, but that you have to keep moving and you have to sort of like take the momentum and take your anxieties and your fear and jump. Um, and that's what I did. And uh, I've sort of done that repeatedly. <laughs> you know, I was um... going to say that. Like, <laughs> you seem like someone that has said yes way more often than they've said no. <laughs> yeah i think you know i in thinking about it now i don't know if it tracks back and it might very well so track back to that moment with vibe and the source and and keith especially but i think as you said more often in my career is as long as i have a glimpse of the landing pad i have enough confidence to think that i'll you know hit hit the bullseye uh successfully so I've often been a big proponent of I will jump off the cliff and figure out the parachute on the way down, you know? So <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I think uh, the batting average is more successful than it's not. So that's my primary lesson, I would say. <laughs> One, to take that jump and two, to realize that you are underestimating your own value. Mm -hmm, right. Was that something you struggled with? Were you one of those self-deprecating people that said like, well, I'm good, but I'm kind of not that good, a little imposter. I, I would think, you know, aspects of that, I would say that um, the word you use is very important value. And that's something that, um, you know, thinking back to Daytuan, I think I was able to be really helpful for him in, in that regard, because there was a point where I was like, who is doing your deals? And I just steered, I steered him to my lawyer, right? That that point you raised, so it wasn't, it wasn't imposter syndrome, but it was I think the challenge a lot of creative people have, especially when you come from a family that was um, like, like I did, not that it was anti-creative, but, you know, for my hard work in West Indian family, like being a writer was such an ephemeral thing. Like there, there was no value proposition to attach to, to it necessarily, right? So, you know, we knew what a lawyer was or a banker or a doctor, these sort of really like tangible things. So I think the piece of that that carried over to me when I started working professionally was I did not know how to value myself, right? It was like, okay, you think I'm worth whatever? I guess that's good, right? You know, there wasn't a, you know, I, I always thought, you know, I had a, I always thought I was brilliant, you know, so that wasn't the issue, like the self-imposter thing, but that brilliance being worth X, Y, Z in the marketplace, 
was a equation that didn't really connect for for me. Um, I think like a lot of people, I was never very good at asking for what I was worth because I wasn't always sure what I was worth. <laughs> you know, so yeah. that journey was a painful process of going through a couple of these kind of negotiations, eventually being like, you know what, other people do this for a living. Someone should do this for you, right? That was a sort of a big revelation, like, oh, other people do do do, do the deal. I don't have to do it myself. <laughs> right. So yeah. the slow, bumpy process of self-actualization for a creative person in the in the marketplace. Um, you know, that was a journey to be learned, I suppose. That's something a lot of people struggle with is that mm. that negotiation because I don't like doing it. I I know you, you say we can you can hire a lawyer to do it for you. It's not about you're going to pay me or I'm I'm going to walk. Mm-hmm. It's more along the lines of look we we both want to win here. You know, mm-hmm. you have a certain mm-hmm. value, I have a certain mm-hmm. value and and I'm sure we can mm-hmm. get to a place where it's fair for both of us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and when you strike it from that position, it takes a little of the pressure off of its less antagonistic and more, mm-hmm. look, we're just trying to find a fit. Like what, what guidance or advice would you have for people to establish what their worth is? How, what would you suggest? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the, the, the first part of it, I say this with the caveat that the, the game you and I played in the nineties is so much different now. You know, I have no idea what the media market landscape is for, for journalists these days. Um, but, I, but a big piece of that was a, um, back then for me was research and you know research is a strange word today i think in the internet culture everyone has this you know this notion that i think is weirdly tainted of they do their own research but that's that's like a whole sort of you know thing to, to, to unpack um but it was really a thing back then because people weren't always sort of vocal about what they made that was the first part for me i, I think still holds true understanding where the market values what you do right is getting some context on you know you know you know around that so that's really where where i started because we also grew up with these well we all have so many hang-ups psychologically around money but even a question of like you know for me when i was younger like how much one made was such a private intimate thing or like oh, yeah. I, I can i can never ask someone that like how you know how how dare i so yeah. you're conducting stuff in the you know you're conducting your your affairs in the dark which only serves the the higher corporate structure they're happy for you to be ignorant so to speak of, of the sort of larger scale so breaking out of that shell of like it was a really important first step for me and i would assume would still be true today for people that that research it it's worth its weight in gold the other thing is if you have friends, if you have friends or in HR, that's a very valuable thing. Too. <laughs> that's gold. Yeah. That's, that's gold too. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you talk about, you know, moments uh, that were, were meaningful things that you learned from. Uh, we talked about this before. Uh, congratulations for joining the, the 50 club. Uh, there for you turning go. 50. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like a, a number of things clicked into place or a number of things crossed your plate when you hit 50. What, what was that like? Oh yeah, you know it's um fifty marked a particular apex of success for me, um, and it was just weird how things just came together. So literally the 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 month of May when I turned fifty, a series of things happened. One was I completed, you know, that I had moved to the biggest agency here in town, CAA. Two, I had entered into um. You know, this is sort of like the target that TV writers aim for here is something called an overall deal, um, you know, where you're sort of signed exclusively to one of the big um, studios here, you know, and in town for a number of years. It, it's what 
you know, it gives you a certain amount of economic safety and, and, and flexibility. So I signed a pretty big overall deal with Universal, with UCP uh, specifically. Then I was on vacation with my friends in Mexico. This is one of these scenes that you like, I'd imagine, but it had never really happened to me. Maybe two months, maybe a month before I had taken a big movie pitch out. I can't be specific yet, but it's it's on one of the biggest hip hop groups of all time. Everybody in town wanted to buy it. And I'm on this boat in Mexico with my best friends while my lawyer is like calling me, you know, filming on the auction that's happening. You know, like I never had something go to like a frenzied like auction. And um, I don't even want to say where it ended up because I'll either sound like I'm showing off or it's, you know, embarrassing. But it was it was needless to say, I think I'm I think I'm pretty sure, according to my age, is that I made the biggest um, feature pitch sale last year in Hollywood based on this project. Yeah. So signed to CAA, sign an overall television deal, sell a huge film project all around my birthday. <laughs> so, so it's a pretty good birthday. <laughs> that is quite a, a turn of 50. I, I bet I'm sure it softened the sting of the number uh, when those things <laughs> click into place. Yeah. yeah. No, you know, I've, I've always been cool. I think like anyone else, you, you you do. We all have some kind of psychological angst around aging, you know. And um, I think um, I've always had one. Uh, I guess part of it is a sense of my own mortality um, that really comes from the particular cohort or generation that I grew up with here, you know, in in the states, even in Guyana as well. Um, many, 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 many friends that I grew up with are no longer here, right? So, I think there, there's a piece of you that always sort of realizes that. And for me, it's why you know I was telling you today I got these ten things to do. Right? It fuels a kind of urgency to get things done to not leave your mark because I already have a mark, but to continue to refine it. A sense of, you know, I don't want to dwell on the question, but I don't know how much how much time I have left, right? You know, um, you know, there's there's an inherent sort of like ticking sand clock to being a young uh, a black man in this country, sort of regardless of class, really. You know, um, our lifespans are are different; they're, they're shorter, and uh, you know, and tragedy visits itself upon us in different ways, whether via police or health consequences, right? You just um, you know, I've lost friends to, you know, all sort of manner of thing. So I think um, 50 for me was much less like, oh, I'm getting old, than more sort of like a another sort of tick on that sand clock. It's like, okay, you know, um, and I've always been, since I was young, the person that does the, here's the one-year plan, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. I've been doing it since I was, my father made me start doing this. So I think I've been doing it since I was 12, right? So you know, so for me, I'm like, all right, you know, that 40 to 50 that we just talked about is a pretty good decade, right? To go from sleeping on my dad's couch. Um, my dad's been living in LA since the 70s in, in in Inglewood. And when I came out here, you know, I, at the very least, I had that roof over my head. But I was still 41, 42 with a kid with my bank reserves dwindled down almost nothing sleeping on my dad's couch in his office and you know um it's a hollywood cliche that everyone who makes it goes through their own version of i used to sleep in my car on venice but it's kind of true right it's there's a it's almost like the gods of the town require you to reduce yourself to zero before they visit 
success on you and you know and you can plan you know i had i had planned my transition i'd saved all this money up you know post bt but it just never works out you 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 got to empty the coffers and have that kind of just hungry desperation that lets you like do the kind of things i did like you know just stay up all night writing just writing multiple scripts pitching things taking meetings just a frenzy of florida activity and a sense that nothing was going to stop me from you know getting to get into the other side and it took took a few years it was very very hard but it did you know so that 40 to 50 you know compared to where you know as i mentioned that birthday last year it was a pretty good decade um so for me this the question of this next you know you know decade and what that work looks like is something that i'm you know invested in and deeply excited about it begins with washington black which spans both decades because obviously i started creating it in this in these last 10 years but it's the first thing the first big thing in the public that will signal this next span of work from for me right when it comes out next year and um people will get to see what i've been doing <laughs> this whole time and get to see what kind of creator i am in this space and and you know and, and get to see how that migration as a writer has been has been made so yeah so i'm looking forward to that and you know, my, my 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 company Universal, you know, sort of reminds me of the other piece of this that I've always loved, which is not just being the sort of creative and the writer myself, but to build an architecture, to build a, a structure that allows other writers, especially writers who look like me, to realize their own dreams, right? So for me, it doesn't feel that much dissimilar from The Source or 360 or BET or any one of these larger structures that I was, um, you know, fortunate enough to help create back then. But now having a production company, I'm able to just just ease other people who are trying to get to where I am and beyond their path now, right? So, you know, my deal allows me to say, okay, you got a great idea for a television show, and it becomes a real thing for you, right? Um, and that's that's uh, that makes me feel really good. So, in addition to my own work as a writer, um, my work as a producer, helping to guide you know other writers work um is also going to be a major thing in the next decade and then my work you know both as a film writer and as a and, and as a director which is also something that's coming down to the pike as well so and then somewhere in this next decade i need to get a novel out and another another graphic novel as well because i got to get back to, to comic books so you know my tenure plan is pretty packed but you know we'll we'll see how it goes god willing <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in the comic book comment because I want to come back to that. Sure, um, sure, sure. So when you when you talk about hitting 50 and and yeah. all those things clicking into place and and levels of success that you didn't envision and the the struggles that preceded that, can you talk a little bit about, I think we mentioned your, your time at HBO and how that ended. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the struggles that happened sleeping on the couch sure, is one, but like sure. what are some of those things that you overcame because that's what people yeah they see yeah. they see you on the boat getting the deal yeah they don't see are the the things that you overcame yeah so. the the broad category is learning to deal with rejection and the perception of failure right and it is both on the personal and professional side right um and if you're someone like me, which most people in this business are sort of like high achieving, self-driven people, 
you're also the kind of person that is brutally hard on yourself, right? So the psychological toll you take on yourself, it can be pretty, you know, you know, brutal as well. And how does that, you know, you know, manifest or how did it manifest for me? Um, you know, beginning like on the personal side, again, I was in my early 40s. I'd had a pretty successful career in, in New York by, you know, anybody's reasonable estimation. I'd gone to a fancy Ivy League school and for a lot of people in my life, it made no sense that I was where I was, right? Like on my dad's couch with no money, struggling, right? You know, so you get a ton of the, why don't you just give that stuff up and just, you know, like come, you know, timing could give you a job in the second or kind of asked or, you know, so you get an entire Greek chorus, a lot of it born born out of concern for you but you get an enormous amount of pressure before you cross the Rubicon to give up. Right. Um, and that's an, that's, that's a hard thing to resist. Right. I mean, it could, it could be your mother it could be, you know what I mean? So it's a wide spectrum of people. And then coupled with the fact that you've got a young life that you, you're responsible for and you're not making any money. It's a, the pressure you then put on, on yourself is, is, is enormous. Right. So, so for me, just, not giving up or not sort of bowing to the pressure to, to, to fold was, was huge. Right. Like, did you, did you come close to giving up? Not at its deepest level. Did I break down in tears many a night? Yes. Um, do I, I was going through my, um, my video files the other day and I found, I found this video that I was like, Oh my God, I gotta show my daughter this one day when I'm brave enough. But I don't even know why I did this. This is like, it was me driving back from summer in my dad's car and I'm taping myself as I drive. And it's like, I'm just yelling at the top of, of, of my voice, like talking to both myself or some future self, like trying, like, like essentially trying to say like, stick with it. Like, I'm not going to break. I'm not going to bend. I'm from New York city. Fuck this. Like this place can't break me. You know, it was like my own kind of self cheerleading but I, 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 I listened to that the other day and the degree of like raw emotional pain, I think was one, anxiety, fear, like all those things were, were, were living and present in that version of Selwyn in a really, really strong way. And I, I think, you know, that's the, you know, that's, it's one thing they say about like being under fire, like in combat, right? Like you're not going to not be deathly afraid, but do you keep moving forward? Like, do you master it? I was terrified in those days, you know, I was terrified of failing. I was terrified that I had wagered the hugest bet possible that I would get to that point that I got to like last year or whatever. Like eventually, like I'm going to get there. Um, partly because I'd never not been successful in my life. Like, like, I, you know, I, I'd never not say, said, okay, here's the mission. That's the target. I'm going to get to it. I'd never ultimately failed in doing that. Mm -hmm. Lots of bumps and bruises along the way sometimes got the gold crown and then dropped it right but I'd always gotten there right so there's a kind of muscle memory i think for success that carried me through some of those terrible you know moments and um yeah i mean and they were rough i mean it's like my good friend uh carlito rodriguez who was also a writer of the source and was the editor after me and um you know i've been on that sort of dual right his track for years and years um but he also works here in, in hollywood and um had come out a couple of years before me and was already sort of tasting sort of like success as in steady employment right you know but before i was 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and we talk about it. There was there was literally a day when I don't think I had any money and I was starving. And I was like, Khalido, could you please meet me at, at, at this KFC? I just really need to borrow some money so I can eat. And it was just that guttural for me at that point. I mean, I I just had like a network of like, okay, this month I can ask this person for this. I can, you know, maybe borrow some money from this person to pay my phone bill so I can call my daughter. So, you know, it, it, it's, you go to this Rubik's Cube of like, and I'm already, I'm already this person who one hates to ask for anything right mm-hmm. b has a certain amount of residual pride in terms of who i am and what people think of me and so on and so forth and um it's it's difficult to like but i got past that really quickly <laughs> right it's sort of like the vulnerability of putting yourself at need and i had many friends who told me some version of dude like the amount you have done for people like mm-hmm. you have enough capital that you can spend and um that was a really, really helpful thing to hear. And I would say there's no way that I get through those first. It seems longer in, in retrospect, but it's about, it's about three years, right? Because from 2012 to 2015 in LA, I got my first paying Hollywood job in 2015, like my first studio contract. But those first three years felt like 10. Like I said, as much as there was a cohort of people who would just, you know, give this thing up, you know, come back and get a real job. Um, there was a huge core of people who were like, whatever you need, whatever I can do, you're my friend, you're my brother, I'll be here for you. That was something that was extraordinarily gratifying. My daughter is probably the main piece of it because she never gave into despair. And it was, you know, I mean, she's pretty young, but she's still old enough to sort of know daddy's in a tough place. And, um, you know, I could never like, look in her eyes and not feel motivated right and not feel reminded of well this is the reason i can't drop the football that i I gotta get through like the you know the scrum and the tackles because because of her right so yeah and then that's all just the personal stuff and then professionally in hollywood trying to make it you know it's just a this is a town of of no's right so you are constantly putting your soul and yourself and your innards into people's hands and saying, like me, please. And they go, nah, I don't like this. And they throw, <laughs> you know, and they, and they throw you away. So yeah. alongside all of the, like, I need money to eat, you know, people telling you to go get a job, you're trying to do the thing that you came here to do, whether that's, you know, going to pitch things or um, writing things or, you know, just the, just all this, all the work that adds up to trying to break through the wall in Hollywood and you get no for three years running is like really hard. Just a constant barrage of no's or the version that sometimes just as stuff, a constant barrage, barrage of maybes, right? Because you know, there's a world where no is like, well, I'm doing the wrong thing. So it was never that. It was always like, oh my God, like you're so talented, duh, 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 but maybe not now. Right. And that's like almost worse. Right? <laughs> kind of yeah. like, well, then I, I I feel like I don't have the tangible reason for why this thing isn't happening. You know, you're like, oh, such a great writer. This is so cool. But now we're going to hire somebody else, you know, and, and you're just left with like, I, I, I don't know what else to do. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, everyone has their own different story of how the wall cracked for them and so on and so forth. And it's hard to reduce it to sort of macro principles. But I will say, I think it's some version of pressure applied as consistently as possible, right? So 
you know, it's like I got a little hammer and a little thing. It's a giant wall. And I just keep tapping on it, tapping on it, mm-hmm. tapping on it. And then you're not even aware one day you're like, the wall break. And you're like, holy crap, you know. Or what it actually does is first it cracks a little trickle and then it gets bigger and it gets bigger, right? And then for me, it wasn't the big dramatic break. It was like, there's a little water coming out. And <laughs> then a little bit more. Then <laughs> a little bit more. And <laughs> a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, I got my first studio job um, in 2015 and they sort of just started snowballing after that, um, you know, slowly. But it's funny. That's why I brought the HBO thing, because even in the midst of like, oh, success is happening, right? There's, there's always the one step backwards, the, the one steps, you know, sideways. And um, this is 2016 now. So I've been sort of like, you know, hot up and coming writer for, for, for years now. I'm feeling, feeling pretty good and have this... Um, you know, the writer's lifeblood in Hollywood, at least early on in your career, is taking these meetings that they euphemistically call generals. You know, you just take a general meeting and you just you just go chat with people and, you know, maybe you find something in common. Um, but you talk a lot. You, you spend a lot of time just going to offices and, and talking. Again, at least early on before people are chasing you. You know, you're sort of like, I'm here to talk. Um, and I had a really good meeting at HBO, wonderful people. They gave me this book that I was like, oh, I really love this book. I think this is really cool. You know, they they had they kind of low-keyed the whole way, and I didn't realize till late in the process that I was pitching to turn this book into a series and um, also a series that had, you know, uh, George R. R. Martin of, of Game of Thrones fame, you know, a, a, attached to it. So I pitched it, and everybody seemed to love the pitch. And I go home, and a couple of days pass and then the producers call to say hey you got the job and i thought i was like they got i was like they're lying <laughs> like you serious and then i hung the fun up and i just said holy shit i just sold the show to hbo and that still sounds as amazing as it felt <laughs> right like it's, it's right. extraordinary right you know and i call my mother call all my friends like it was such a marker of like oh, okay like i'm 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 here you know doing it. here in this place i'm, I'm doing it yeah the, the project itself was challenging it, it ended up being my first experience of a particular kind of thing that happens here in hollywood which is just ultimately creative visions don't match um and it can be a really painful you know marriage um so without sort of like you know because i don't like to do this either sort of like you know pointing fingers or like talking about people um, ultimately what happened was I got fired and I got fired in a really painful way. Right. So it's sort of like, you know, it's like, it's like the firing that, that equates to, you know, imagine you got st- stuck with a knife and they like pull it out really slow as opposed to like a quick jab. Right. Cause you know, things, things weren't really going that well. And then I got a call from the producers that was sort of like the it's not, it's so much like like relationships to like oh it's not you it's us you know like they're like careful <laughs> so i got the it's i got the yeah, we don't know if it's working it's not you it's us maybe we did that and then i was like oh i'm i'm not under i'm fired right and then that was that call and then i was so stunned that i, I called hbo my exec there and i spoke to my junior exec first who hadn't heard about any of this and was like that's bullshit. You're not well, like, what are you talking about? Like, like who's like, if, if anything, like they're fired. Like, <laughs> so we had this, so now I call my agents. I'm like, I just, I just heard I was fired and then not fired. And I'm just like tripping. Right. And then I got another call from the more senior issue exec who was like, 
sorry to saw wasn't really handled smoothly actually you are fired <laughs> you know <laughs> so it was a, it was this yo-yo of just like your heart in your heart's out your heart's in your heart your heart's out and when it was all sort of said said and done um you know and of i'm making i'm making extraordinarily light of just how i was emotionally not just that day but then the very tough days like lead like leading up to it it was probably the closest thing to the stress I felt breaking in in those terrible early days was that level of stress you know like you know my heart was doing palpitations on every phone call and just this particular morning of like you're fired you're not fired you're not fired like I was so stressed out and then you know in the wake of all of it it brought back all those old feelings again did I drop this was I never supposed to have it and and basically have I failed again, you know, and what does this mean in the larger narrative for my success and, you know, in the business? Um, turned out it really meant nothing. I mean, clearly look what happened in the, in the, yeah. the preceding year, but, but I didn't know that at the time, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm such a driven, like hard on myself. I wasn't even like really allowing it to be sort of like a shared screw up. I was just like, I fucked this up. Right. Cause I just take responsibility on my own shoulders and this is going to be bad for me, you know? And, um, it took me a while to kind of get out of that mindset, understand one, this is a pretty common thing in our business. Understand two, that I couldn't personalize it, at least not the degree that I was, right? Because you're going to personalize that stuff. You're like, screw them, right? <laughs> you know, but that I couldn't do that, right? I couldn't personalize it to the degree that it would like, it would eat in my soul, you know? Um, and three, um, I think I talked about this this actual event on, on Twitter one time and I ended the, the thread referencing a gospel song that I love by Donnie McClurkin that says, um, we fall down, but we get up. You know, um, and it's as simple as that. And and I got there, but so I was like, you know, I was like this, I was like, this is not new. You know, getting knocked on your ass is not new, right? And you have never not gotten up in the past and kept walking and walked even further. So just, you know, it's not new. Someone, it's the same shit. Get up and keep walking. And once I was able to sort of really mentally and emotionally wrap my head around that. That's what I did. And um, you know, it's been pretty it's been pretty good since then. <laughs> I don't mean to to dredge up all the negative aspects. I think that's so helpful for people to see that mm. all these things preceded and your ability to keep chipping away at that wall and until eventually you're like, wait, I'm actually on the other side of the wall. When did that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, completely. <laughs> completely. For my own benefit, I'm taking notes. Sure. Like, surviving the rough days prior to the, to the salad days. But the one thing I circled was help. Like your ability, yeah. your ability and willingness to ask for help mm -hmm. um, is something so, so many people avoid. They almost consider that failure in itself, like mm -hmm. asking for help, which mm -hmm. almost no one, no one gets there without help. Yeah. The motivation, like your why, mm -hmm. The, the fact mm -hmm. that you, your daughter was your why that mm -hmm. said like, I may not succeed, but I'm not going to fail. That there's, there yeah. is no other option because I'm not going to fail for, yeah. for my daughter. Those two things, like the asking for help and understanding what your why is seem so essential to anyone trying to do something difficult. They're vital, man. You know, cause it's, it's going to punch you in the face, you know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't hard, you'd be, you know, you probably wouldn't be doing it. It's going to punch you in the face. And, 
you got to have those two things that that you that you mentioned you know and and then the one other other thing i would say that goes along with the asking for help is try to help people and you know like like try try to give out the thing that if you do enough of that it will hopefully come come back to you but don't don't do it in the expectation that it will it will come back to you just just try to be try to be of service basically um try to genuinely help if if you're invested in that i mean i i guess some people aren't by nature um you know but i think that's also a key part of success is both sides of it is a communal experience i think you know the mm -hmm. giving the giving and the getting if that makes sense yeah especially the giving without expectation your your hbo story it sounds it it's really similar to a story i heard from Corey Guerin, who is a a, a pitcher a pitcher okay. for the for the giants the braves the yankees mm -hmm. And he told the story because I asked him the same question. I said, Hey, Corey, how close did you come to giving up? Mm -hmm. And, and he just told the story about how he's, you know, up and down from the minors into mm -hmm. the majors. And he finally, like the, the second year in the majors, he's like, I came up. He said, I was lights out. I got in, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I got in against the Yankees. I had a rod up with the bases loaded. He grounded into a double play. I went in the next inning, uh, mm -hmm. shut him down again, went in the next game, shut him down again. And I'm in the locker room. The coach says, uh, you know, the manager needs to see you. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, you're going back down. And he said, that broke me. Yeah. And it yeah. broke me because just like you said, I'd never, everything I'd set my sights on, if I was good mm -hmm. enough and I worked hard enough, I got there. I deserved the chance. Mm -hmm. I got it because mm -hmm. it was the first time where I did everything right. I did mm -hmm. everything within my power and it wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. Yeah. And so thinking like you at HBO and sometimes it's just a fit. It's not that it's you're a, not It's capable. just a fit. Exactly. Exactly. It wasn't a fit, but you exactly. don't know that. You don't you, know that. You're crushed because you think I'm, mm -hmm. well, I'm not a, I must not be a good writer. I, maybe yeah. I'm not capable of doing this. Yeah. You're like, I suck. I suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That inner, that inner critic, man. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, look, so someone, I promise I would come back to this for my own selfish purpose. Please, please do. Please do. All right. Whatever. So I just want to see if we could geek out a little bit because when I read your book and you made the reference to Desert Power from Frank Herbert's <laughs> I was like cheering. I was like, yes, into sci-fi classics. I love that. Can you talk about how like, how you got into comic books and, and sci-fi? What's yeah. your favorite? I've got so many questions. I want to ask oh you your opinion God. on different movies. That's that's such a that's that's my happy place, Jim. I mean, um, I I, I got into sort of sci-fi and fantasy because I'm, I'm probably even more of a fantasy fan than I am sort of a pure sci-fi fan. Um, in the same place where I started reading, which is in Guyana, and. I, I think my narrative of finding my way to fiction in general, and I talk about this a lot growing up in Guyana in the in the late seventies and early eighties, and we didn't really have television, you know. I mean, people would have like VHS machines, and if you had relatives here, they would like tape a bunch of stuff and like send it to you, right? So like my grandparents' house where I stayed a lot of time. You know, we had this library of VHS tapes that I remember really well because every movie in there I must have seen a hundred times, right? So it was very eclectic. I'm like, I've seen, there's like 10 movies I've seen a lot, right? I don't watch TV, but I've seen these 10, 10 movies a lot. So really you filled up your time imagination, at least I did with reading. Um, my grandparents also had a gigantic library of books. Um, 
I must have been reading from what they say from the time I was like three or four, you know, kind of four years old, because I do know that they were buying me like big, heavy Stephen King novels by the time I was nine, you know, like, and, um, and then what are you funny. reading? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I read, I mean, everything. I mean, that 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 first batch of early King novels, you know, from Salem's Lot to, you know, Carrie to, you know, it's fine. I think horror probably took me to sci-fi, you know, because um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, King King was a big fan. When I was like nine, nine, ten, I was, I was a big fan of King. I'd also started reading comics around the same time. Um uh giant x-men number two was i think literally the first comic book that i read um claremont i'm hooked for life <laughs> you know yeah. uh, um, and i was also reading a lot of um a publisher of these comics that published stories of the sort of hindu pantheon so there were these okay. fantastical stories about the hindu gods you know that were adventures and um that also hooked me early i'm i'm sort of a, a big fan of that particular subset of graphic novels and comic stories based in and around pantheons it's why i love thor <laughs> you know but but something gods and the proclivities of gods and gods and the hubris of gods and the arrogance and the sort of like friction between gods and, and men and the interdependence like that is the story world has always fascinated me which is also a big reason that that gets me into asimov and specifically into the asimov series incarnations of immortality which also is a way of talking about gods, right? Um, and, and for those who don't know, I mean, he has, he has a particular series, um, not one of his most famous, that sorts of tackles these sort of like large human incarnations and makes them like personas, right? So whether it's like war, death, um, it's an incredible series of novels about people the guy who wakes up one morning and discovers he's the incarnation of death, <laughs> right? And, and so what that means, right? What's that series called? Uh, the Incarnations of Immortality. I have no um, Okay. Yeah, it's really good. On the fantasy side, I think like a lot of people, it's Tolkien. I first discover Lord of the Rings at our local library. And I don't read, I, actually, I don't read The Hobbit till years later. Like, you know, like I'm a Lord of the Rings fan from 10 years old, right? <laughs> like, like that's, that's my thing. Um, so Tolkien really sort of like develops my love of, of fantasy. And I think I'm attracted to it for the same reason a lot of kids are right like the idea of journey the idea of travel the idea of journey with a group of you know friends you know the idea of fellowship and banding to, to you, know, you know you know together against the vicissitudes of, of the world i mean it's the same concept in many ways that's there at the core of the x-men i think which is also why i responded so heavily you know you know to, you know, to the x-men that feeling of like not having to tackle arrows slung at you from the world, but doing it in the in the company of like a fellowship, you know, of your friends, and and together we are stronger. You yeah. know, I think that's something that's always like attracted me in fiction, you know, and in general. Um, so thus begins my sort of lifelong journey into this, you know, world. So I remember being in Barnes and Noble on in New York on the intersection of Sixth and Eighth. There was a Barnes and Noble right there, and I'm like, you know, I would go. I was one of those guys who would go every week, beeline for the sci-fi section, and just see what's come out, what looks good, like what's like like what's attracting me. And there was this book with this guy riding through the snow with like a white wolf running next to him, and it looked so different from all the other covers, right? And I was just like. 
I, I don't even think I like read the blurb. I was just like, I'm gonna check this out. And I just picked it up. And it was, you know, Game of Thrones. And um, you know, didn't obviously know the phenomenon it would become, but that book hooked me. So I I I became a a a Martin fan and was that nineteen ninety five when that came out? I think so. Um sometime you know, around then. Um God and and comics, I mean comics are just <laughs> You know, um, it's just constant ways. You know, like I, I've had like a couple of years where in the 90s or so, like I've had years where like I'd fade away and come back and fade away and come back. And there's there's probably two moments, I think, of like coming back that I really, really like remember, like the birth of the the, the birth of image, you know, like back then, yes. um, you know, yes. like that was something that brought me oh, back man. in a big way. Right. Like I'd kind of been like, eh. You know, and I, I just was like, oh my God, like I love all these books. Like I love Spawn, obviously. Um, you know, I love the Young Blood. I love the Wildcats. I love, like, you know, just Image as a Collective was just, it just felt so, so fresh and great. So that really reinvested a great deal of love for me. Then later on, once I got out of school, you know, I think my engagement in music journalism, you know, it was just, just really took a lot of time and I'd kind of slipped off again. Um, and I always give credit to a, a really good friend of mine who, um, started started his world of the source as my intern and has grown up to become maybe one of the most famous you know ARs in black music today a guy named Riggs Morales who 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 works at Atlantic Records but he started life as not life professional life as my 18 year old intern <laughs> but one of the things that, that he did along the way because he's a huge comic fan as well we were having this conversation I was like yeah you know it's been a few years and I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not really buying books right now da, da, da. and he was just like have you ever read? I have it right, right next to me. Lone Wolf and Cup, right? No, no. Frank Miller's. Okay, you, you have to read this. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm making a list here, Sullen. <laughs> so, Lone Wolf and Cup obviously is a is a is Japanese in origin. It's a Japanese uh, manga. Um, I will brutalize the writer's name. So. Kazuo uh, Koke, I think it's how you pronounce it. But anyway, but 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 Frank Miller did the did the sort of Dark Wolf. Um, I'm sorry, Dark Horse American version. There's 25 volumes of, of these basically, oh, wow. and um, you will know the story because not only has it been adapted into various Japanese media, its basic structure has been adapted into many 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 stories. So the basic story is the guy is the Shogun's assassin. All right. Uh, things turn as things turn. Um, enemies come for him, kill his wife. He's got a little son, right? And uh, it's, this is actually Im immortalized on a Wu Tang Clan song, um, <laughs> you know, because they sampled the, the movie, right? And he says to his little son, he puts down the sword and he puts down a ball. And he says, Choose the sword, come with me, choose the ball join your mother and the kid chooses the sword and then basically the whole series is this amazing incredible assassin pushing his baby son around in a cart <laughs> <You know? laughs> i mean and the kid kind of you know grows up and it eventually becomes but it's i mean he's like fighting ninjas like it's basically like i'm pushing like my kid in a pram and i'm like fighting like yeah. ninjas and it's 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 like but it's written and the art's beautiful and it's just like stark and existentialist and this got me right back into it um so once i started buying you know once i read you know low from cub um and i don't think i've stopped actively buying books since then that this was like 98 99 
my own journey to Vertigo is pretty interesting. But before the Hollywood door opened, after I'd left media and was sort of like writing, because comics were so this to me, it just felt like a natural medium to start writing first. Like so many things for me in those days, I had an opportunity that came through Reggie Hudlin, who is just my 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 everything um but reggie said hey i have an opportunity to basically create a comic a graphic novel actually um something much more in-depth about bob marley um you know he was he was close friends with a with a ziggy marley he's also close friends with dennis cowan you know who's, who's a great artist and uh, i was like you know he knows i'm mr caribbean genre like all that stuff. So he's like you're, you're you're like perfect for this and I basically wrote this wrote this treatment for something that, to this day, I'm still like, oh, I love it so much. But it's it's very specifically Bob Marley, so there's no other way to do it. But it it tells the story of the sort of real Bob Marley's life in Kingston around a very turbulent time when he's nearly assassinated, and this fictional story of essentially his spirit traveling from hell to heaven or from Babylon to like Zion, you know, and really like steeped in like Jamaican like lore and mythology and he's chased by Screwface, which was the devil. And it's it's it was really, really cool. So we sent that around to different publishers and stuff. Karen at Vertigo got it, really loved it. For various reasons the actual deal never sort of worked out. But the following Comic Con I'm pretty sure it was Reggie. Yeah, introduced me to, to Karen on the floor, and she was like, "I fucking love your writing." <laughs> and she was like, "We we have to figure some something to do together." So, and my series was the last one that she did as editor in chief at, at at Vertigo. My uh my Dominic Laveau Voodoo Child series um was her was her last series there, and uh, you know the, the series eventually fell prey to larger DC bureaucracy, which even at the time was becoming a thing. Like. I finally found the legs of the series on this really, really, really. And and even just as a writer in comics, like on the sixth book, right? Which I still thought was like pretty fast, right? Sort of the first arc is the first five books. You know, the sixth book was a standalone story um, that wasn't connected, only loosely connected to the larger myth. And I was like, I got it. I, I got it. I got, I, got, I got the rhythm. So... I'm I'm ready to start book seven, beginning like the new arc, and they're like the series is canceled. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I ended up having to write book seven in a way that would like kind of satisfy where I had sought ending up. You know, many 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 issues from now. So, you know, uh, uh, it, it was a bit of a, of a bit of a bittersweet moment. But to this day, like having that beautiful beautiful book, um, that graphic novel um, written written by me and drawn by Dennis Cowan is extraordinary. And Grace note to that is I can't tell you the network yet, but we just sold it for television. Um, oh, seriously? So, yeah. So Voodoo Child will be a TV show coming soon. <laughs> oh, man. I picked it up because I wanted to, uh -huh. see, I wanted to see Amazing. Like. And, <laughs> and I loved it. And I got to ask you a question because sure. as I'm reading through it, I'm like, this has some vibes of the talisman and the way you yeah. flip back and yeah. forth between those mm -hmm. two worlds. And I'm like, mm -hmm. gee, this feels a lot like, like Stephen King. W was that any influence? Was there any influence? That's, that's so interesting. I mean, I've never thought of it that way, but it makes complete sense to me. Right. You know, it's, it's been years since I've been like an avid King reader, you know, like I, I, I think the guy literally is the first fiction on a serious level that I ever tackled. And I read so much of it. And my, 
my early life great joy all my family would tell you is buy someone the new Stephen King novel for Christmas. I would get a Stephen King novel every Christmas from yeah. 10 to 22 or, or, or whenever you know, Dreamcatcher came out. And I would devour it by lunchtime. And um, so, no, it, it is not a surprise to me that when I sort of undertook my first big published piece of fictional writing, that some of that muscle memory is connected to all the masters that I absorbed at a really young age. So um, it's really cool to hear that. I hadn't, I'd never thought of that. <laughs> I never thought of that at all. Well, I thought it was. I thought it was great. I, I thought the series. Was I'm great. so. I'm so glad you. I'm so glad you read that. I'm so glad you liked it. That 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 surprised me. You know, because you you have this like, well, nobody ever reads my shit. You know, and it's like, I've got this like. I saw. I also got this like. Yeah, when the show comes out, you know, people will like discover it. You know, um, but I do remember from the time it was being published that there there actually is a really core like devoted like audience to it. You know, who would, like write me a lot and and you know ask questions about it. So. I'm waiting to announce to those people, although they may hear their first, um, you know, that it's coming back as a TV show. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What's, what is old is new, right? Uh, Selwyn, you've been very, very generous with your time. And I wanted to maybe just ask you a couple of quick questions sure. as we uh, as we wrap up. If you go back and you look at your storied career through where you are to this point, is there anything that you would change or alter if you could go back and do it over again i don't we all ask ourselves that question um especially if you're like a sci-fi time travel junkie <laughs> you know like myself and you know jim i have to say i have asked myself that question the answer is always no um because i think the people that we are were just some representations of our successes our failures our flowers our knife cuts, it, it all sort of adds up. So I don't know that the me that I am today, who I'm happy with, would still be the me, you know, even changing some of the really painful, terrible things that, that, that happened. I mean, you know, I'm more likely not to want to change those things because I think that's the stuff that really like those fires of stuff that you have to push through. Um, you know, it would, it would probably be more silly things that I'd want to change, but, um, no, short answer. I, I don't I don't think so. I love I love who I am. Um as much as I have my own challenges with <laughs> you know with who I am like everybody else. Um I love the work I do and I think our, all our yesterdays add up to today. So I wouldn't want to change them. The scars are an important part. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then let me let me ask you this. The sure. you, you built a, a life as a creator, right? From a from a ten year old writing short stories in Georgetown to, uh, you know, a 50 year old <laughs> signing book deals on a yacht in, uh, I'm not sure <laughs> it was a yacht, but in a boat <laughs> in Mexico. But if someone's listening right now and they want, they want to create something, right? Yeah. Maybe it's art, maybe it's a new relationship, maybe it's a business. Yeah. What is, what is something that they could do that would make you proud? Huh. <laughs> That's a really good question. It's a simple answer. Uh, hopefully it doesn't sound too cliche advice 101, but it is be true to your vision and be true to yourself because anyone that has the gumption to be the God of their own universe is always going to run into a Lucifer or a set of Lucifers trying to tear that universe down. 
and it's easy to compromise, easy to change, easy to stop, you know, creating. But if you can hold steadfast, resist the yammerings, hold true to your vision, believe in yourself, I think that's the most extraordinary thing as a creator that 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 you can do. That's right. uh, that's yeah. from the horse's mouth. That's from somebody who's done it. Somebody who's, uh, <laughs> uh, taking the taking that long road to get there. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, Jim, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure um, to do, and uh, uh, thank you for extending the opportunity to me. I greatly appreciate your time and your story arc, and all the great lessons that are contained within that people can take away and uh, and apply to their own lives. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I would ask you to please do one thing. Please consider this simple question. Who is the most influential person in your life? Would you have that answer? I would love to tell your story. You can nominate your great unfamous on Twitter or Instagram at gr8unfamous. If you want to do it privately, there's a link for that as well. But if you do none of that, at least let this person know what they mean to you. It could mean the world to them. Until the next episode, take care and be kind.